to the EEF podcast, Evidence Interaction. This episode is on our latest guidance report, Teacher Feedback to Improve Pupil Learning. And we're really pleased to have a wealth of expertise as, as we normally have on the podcast. We're going to talk to some EEF content specialists, Nikki Kaiser, Simon Cox and Caroline Bilton, who are going to take a real practical classroom perspective on the guidance report and, and explore it in relation to maths and, and science and English and literacy. And then we're going to speak to another brilliant practitioner, Claire Christie, who is a, a maths expert who also offered a great deg degree of expertise for the guidance report itself. And then we're going to end with Corinne Settle from SSAT, who is a, a crucial lead in the national and, and international actually program embedded formative assessment, which really does take um, high quality feedback and put it into action um, into a fantastic program. And I'm really pleased to also introduce my co-presenter for this episode, Joe Collin. Joe, Johnson, you should introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, my name is Joe Collin. I'm a programme manager at the EEF and I lead on a variety of our, of our themes at the EEF, such as professional development and parental engagement. Uh, but the one that's most relevant here, of course, is feedback. Uh, and I, uh, alongside Alex, have been leading the process over the last two years in producing this feedback guidance report. Uh, and that process uh, entailed initially uh, commissioning a team at the Epicentre, uh, which are based out of University College London, who produced a systematic review of evidence, which underpins our guidance. Uh, and we then fed that into uh, a panel of expert academics and practitioners. So we've got some really expert academics who've been on the panel, uh, academics such as Professor Steve Higgins, who's the author of the, the EEF Teaching Learning Toolkit. We also consulted um, uh, academics like Dylan William, um, uh, academics like Ruth Dan, also at UCL, uh, and we, we had some fantastic current practitioners uh, who, uh, who are teachers uh, in the classroom, um, and Claire Christie is, is, is one of those on the panel who, who we'll speak to shortly. And, and without further ado, let, let's get into seeing how practitioners are translating and considering the guidance and, and putting it into practice. So now we're going to move on to speaking to our team of EF content specialists, our experts who have one foot in the classroom and also work centrally for the EF in making sure that our evidence products, our guidance reports, our tools and resources and messages really speak to teachers and school leaders. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. So Caroline, can we start with you? Hi Alex. Hi, I'm Caroline, Caroline Bilton. And I'm primary class teacher, school leader up in the northeast of England, and also um, currently the literacy content specialist for the EEF. Great to Brilliant. be here. Brilliant. Thank you. Simon, over to you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Simon Cox. I'm the maths content specialist at EEF. I'm also a secondary maths teacher, practicing teacher, been, been in uh, Blackpool schools for 16 years now, uh, and also a school leader. Thank you very much. And Nikki? Hello, I'm Nikki Kaiser. I am primarily a chemistry teacher at a school in Norwich, um, but I'm also the science content specialist at the EEF this year. And uh, we're a research school, so I also um, work with the Norwich Research School. 
Brilliant. And, and Nikki, if you don't mind, I'll start with you because you've just described the, that, that role as a chemistry teacher. And I just wanted to begin with those reflections of, as a chemistry teacher, what were your initial perspectives on the guidance report and, and the recommendations for teacher feedback? I think the thing that struck me most was the, the emphasis on the, the timeliness and, and what we mean by, you know, what a suitable time is. Uh, you know, there, there are times when in a chemistry lab or in a science lab, you have to give very immediate feedback and uh, you have no choice, you know. Yep. Move that away from the edge of the bench or, you know, take your bags off the floor, take your bags out of the, the gangway. You know, there, there are things, there are various kind of hazards. But, you know, there, there are also other things that I'll be very sure that I pick up on straight away we, we know that I've been talking a lot about science misconceptions this year that can be real hurdles to, to later understanding so if somebody you know comes up with something that that really shows that they have a, a misconception I will find a way of drawing that out straight away and and helping the class as a whole to kind of use that misconception to to, to build on and, and to try and understand and to explore language is another thing I would always pick up on incorrect use of language so you know there, there are things that, that have to happen immediately and then there are other things that that are more perhaps ingrained embedded and, and are going to take a, a longer time to unpick there are things that you pull your hair out because you see them over and over again as you look through a, a set of books or a, a set of test papers and there I guess my approach to feedback would be more kind of um, might come a little bit later, might be introduced to the, the class as a whole. Certainly, I would make sure that it was ingrained or embedded within a future lesson so that we're beginning to build on whatever that, that feedback was rather than just giving the feedback and then forgetting it and moving on. But also within a subject, I mean, within science, definitely. But even if I just take my particular discipline of chemistry, there will be, it will be very specific depending on the topic. Some, some topics are very mathematical and, and often the kind of feedback I'll be giving is just slow down, you know, especially for those at A-level, there'll be some students that usually find this stuff so so easy, they think, and, and they'll rush through things and, and I'll be kind of drawing them back and asking them and to, to kind of think about what they've done and, and take those steps a little bit more slowly. Sometimes we're really kind of trying to get people to express themselves in writing and, and so there'll be other skills that I'm feeding back on there that will be longer term. So, I think the real key message of this report, which is so important, is that not only should the, the decision about what the feedback looks like, what it is, come from the teacher itself, but for every teacher within their subject, it will look different depending on the class, depending on the time of day depending on where they are in the topic, depending on what that topic is within the subject. And, and that for me is the really key message that, that came through for, for the, you know, my rich and we've all got lovely, wonderful, rich subjects, but for my particular subject. I, I was just going to say exactly the same, Nikki. That's what connected with me, that principles of my decision-making in the moment so in primary, obviously, we teach everything from PE to music, you know, all of this juggling of, of the difference of the subjects I want to cover. But most significantly is feeling that I was trusted to make those decisions within those principles. Caroline, you know best the content 
that that sense that feedback is a loop that you're planning for it think carefully about that and know your children and that's where your feedback's going to have most impact not in an imposed set of criteria around that seesaw of written and verbal and timing but in you and your knowledge and your relationships with the children I just found that incredibly um, motivating you know and knowledge of of that's where I can have the most impact for the children that's great thank you and Simon, if I draw you in, and I'm going to kind of demand you become an archetypal maths teacher. You kind of represent every maths teacher uh, currently. But you just talked about um, Caroline and Nikki talked about autonomy and, and teachers making sensitive decisions based on their knowledge of the subject, of the pupil, and, and all of those in the moment kind of decisions. Is there something, Simon, about for a maths teacher perspective on feedback more broadly, but then what might have struck you from the guidance? So, yeah, I think just drawing on what Caroline said there, I think one of, one of the things that struck me initially is that the teacher is the most important part of all this. I, th I think for too long we're focused on feedback policies, marking policies, how frequently we mark books, what colour we mark the, the, the books in. Uh, and actually what, what really, really matters is what am I doing as a classroom teacher in the classroom, whether that's written, whether that's verbal, isn't important. It's, the, it's those, those, those principles. And I think those first couple of recommendations um, struck me as being so important yet and yet often things that we don't really focus on when we're talking about feedback um so thinking about you know the learning intentions and how we're, we're sharing those so really discussing what high quality mathematical work looks like what, what do we mean when we're talking about a strategy being efficient uh, in the maths classroom that the fact there's different ways of approaching mathematical problems so, so those kind of things um, and also that idea of eliciting the the evidence of learning so I've blogged a few times for EF on hinge questions, multiple choice questions. Those can be used really effectively in maths teaching, um, both in, in finding out what pupils do know and don't know, but also in terms of um, finding out those, those misconceptions that might be emerging you know, if, if, those, if those questions are carefully designed. And also this idea of, of carefully designing really rich tasks that are going to reveal what pupils are thinking and re really give me something to give meaningful feedback on. Uh, and I think that that kind of task design that feeds into the feedback is is something that perhaps we haven't focused in on uh, that much in recent years. Joe, do you have any questions about just kind of building on the reflections from Simon there? Yeah, those reflections, I mean, obviously they, they come through so strongly, particularly in recommendation one. And it's, it's an interesting response that we've had to the guidance that people have really welcomed that first recommendation before you even get to feedback. Um, and it is, it is really crucial to, to pay attention to. If we move then into, into sort of recommendation two, I think this is also quite a challenging one and, and, and quite a challenging one for teachers. As, as Nikki and Caroline really expressively alluded to there, like recommendation two is essentially all about putting feedback back into the purview of the teacher and really empowering teachers to do that. Um, but I think timing is is a challenging one there and, and, and is a difficult one to navigate. So I don't know if 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 there are any reflections on that on, on how best to judge it. I mean, what we suggest in the guidance is um, the, the evidence on timing on when to deliver feedback is really mixed. Immediate feedback can have a positive impact. More delayed feedback can have a positive impact. So we encourage teachers to think about the task, think about the specific people think about the class but those are all challenging and, and difficult things to to consider 
So I, I, I don't know if there are any reflections on what that might look like in the classroom. I think for me, Joe, it's about relationships with kids. It's about knowing kids. It's about using your diagnostic assessment um, in the short term, but in the long term, building pictures of, of, of what every child, what, what, what space to, to think do they need or do I need to be more shoulder to shoulder with them on the task? So the task I've carefully planned, as I'm planning it, I'm already thinking, how is it going to be with that child, this group of, I'm already walking my way through it and and doing that sort of pre-mortem of where I'm going to need to be. So my reconnaissance around the class is all led through the growing knowledge of the children and my expectations about how they're going to respond, how I'm going to push that with certain children or how I'm going to step back and give that, that, that sort of space and time. It's all so carefully judged, isn't it, in the moment? And and actually, for me, in, in moving away from that seesaw, I'm liberating some time in my day and my evening after school to, to find the time to really do that walkthrough, to be really prepared, to lay that foundation so I, I can be prepared for those timing decisions. So they are in the moment, but they're also really well informed before I even get there. Yeah, and you really identified one of those key things there, Caroline, around the pupil and thinking really carefully about the pupil. Some pupils will and may need immediate feedback and a teacher will know who those pupils are. Other pupils you could leave and, and they can try and work things out for themselves. And there is evidence to suggest from studies that for some pupils, if they're left to really struggle with a piece of work, that can lead to better transfer of knowledge in the long term and they'll remember things better. Simon? Yes. So I think I think, again, it, it depends on what it is that we're giving feedback on. So I think it could, in some cases, be quite harmful to delay the feedback. If, if a, a child is is just starting out on a mathematical idea and is, is quite clearly developing developing a misconception there, then I think it, it could be really harmful to their mathematical development if I let that go. Uh, but in other cases, for example, if we're introducing a, a strategy which might help in, in the solving of problems, it might be a good idea to let them have a few goes at that before I sort of jump in and start giving feedback on its effectiveness. Yeah, certainly. And it, that's exactly what comes through from the guidance that when delivering feedback, when thinking about when to deliver it, thinking really carefully about the task is crucial. Thinking really carefully about the pupil is crucial. The other thing we know is, is thinking about the class and, and where the class is at, which links to both the task and the pupil. But those are considerations that really come through. Nikki. But you see, this is another reason that it's so important that the decision goes with the teacher, because sometimes it's out of the teacher's hands. I mean, there are teachers in secondary school that see a class maybe every fortnight rather than every week, you know, or a prime, as opposed to a primary teacher that will see their class every day. And, and even with A-level classes, sometimes I'll be you know feeding back on things that they did a couple of weeks ago in exam for example and I know that they <laughs> won't really remember what they did and why they made the decisions and so all the things around self-regulation which are really important and and trying to get students to think about why they made decisions and what they might do differently next time it becomes really difficult if they're struggling even to remember to what they did during that test so it, it 
It's really difficult because there are no easy answers here. That it's really true that sometimes you do want to leave things to sit with people for a while. You do want to revisit them later. Um, and we'll always get it. Sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. Um, but you know that there are so many things that influence when and where and how we can feedback to people that I think that that, that taking that emphasis away from a whole school feedback policy, you will mark these books every two weeks, whatever the topic, wherever you are in the topic, whoever it is you're teaching, however many times you've seen them in those two weeks and moving to, you know, a decision around where it works with the rhythm of the topic, with the, you know, where you've got to with, with various things. That, that is so important and I'm really glad that's being emphasised. I think that's such an eloquent and just brilliant summary of, of one of the key messages of the guidance and it's something we discussed in the panel that this is all about the craft of teaching like feedback is in the feedback loop is really at the core of teaching uh, and it's incredibly difficult it's really hard to do it takes lots of experience and expertise to, to, to get this right and even then it, it, it's, it's really difficult to do and that's why it's so hard to summarize it in a um, in a in a succinct concise feedback policy in the guidance it moves from um the principles of feedback which i think we've discussed the seesaw of methods this kind of you know shift where marking becomes dominant in, in even very specific ways and then verbal feedback becomes perhaps um more important over time and and we end with this final recommendation which is about um designing a, an evidence-based feedback policy what stands out for me is this is tricky, isn't it? This is difficult. And for school leaders, you're balancing teacher autonomy, training and supporting those teachers, and having the, the structures and consistency and all of those other things that, that make school leadership kind of you know drive the ship. Uh, Nikki, can I start with you and just in your kind of perspective on school leadership and, and, and you know how should school leaders interpret, take this guidance, support colleagues, support their teachers? I think you're really right to touch on that tricky balance that they have, um, you know, because on the one hand, we want uh, teachers to be treated as professionals um, and to make decisions. But on the other hand, we want um, some kind of consistency, um, you know, for, for teachers and pupils. We want to, on the one hand, allow teachers to make those decisions, but there will be other teachers for whatever reason, possibly because they're early in their careers, that, that will want to be supported more to make those decisions. And then you're kind of balancing the, the depth of feedback you're giving. You do want to give thorough um, in-depth feedback, however, whatever form that takes, whether it's verbal or written immediately or two weeks later or whatever it is. But at the same time, you're, you're balancing workload and, and whether pupils will actually understand the feedback whether you're giving it to them in a form that they'll understand um and, and so I, I mean I have actually that, that when this came out I one of my roles within the school is to to kind of feed um key bits of um of key reports key bits of research that that I think um the head and SLT will be interested in and and I I did write an email saying you know if you read one thing this weekend 
read the feedback guidance report or not this weekend I shouldn't say that if you read anything one thing this week <laughs> uh, read um, the feedback guidance report um, but I said actually what you should also look at are these um, SLT tools that have been provided to go with it and and I pulled out a few bits of the report but I said actually if you go to the SLT guidance and look at these questions at the end they will really help you to to look at you know what our feedback policies look like at the moment and and ask ourselves questions about them and I think those have been really useful you know that they've come from the team they come from school leaders they come from people that are having to wrestle with these decisions themselves at the same time as, as looking at the guidance report um, and it was really nice to be able to give them something concrete to look at and and it's something that we we're, we're discussing and, and discussing as a team to, to see you know how our feedback policy does um chime with all of this and, and and it just gives you some concrete things to look at and suggestions to make and, and questions to ask yourself which I, I think is really important as you're trying to trying to get the balance right okay that's great and I think what we've captured there is the craft of teaching the the real focus of the teacher need to be supported within a, a framework that scene leadership offer but then also we need to communicate to everybody involved, to the pupils, to parents. And so really, yeah, this is a multifaceted kind of layered challenge. And it's not new, is it? You know, every teacher you know, undertakes feedback. But actually, perhaps the guidance report is that kind of point of reflection to challenge our assumptions, to challenge our marking policy, to, you know, to think a bit harder about teacher planning and, and, and pupils' actions in the classroom. Uh, Joe, what what are your reflections having you know, listened to the content team and kind of practitioners? It's really heartening to to, to hear that these messages I, I think land well uh, with teachers and, and and with senior leaders. Um, and yeah, just some of the discussions really reflect a lot of what's in the guidance. Exactly as you say, Alex, it's it's really challenging to to summarise what should go in a feedback policy because they're so multifaceted. really really useful and helpful to start with those practical insights into the guidance report and now we're going to speak to Claire Christie who as mentioned in the introduction contributed to the guidance but also brings a wealth of expertise into how feedback might translate into mathematics in particular. It's a real pleasure to introduce Claire Christie. Claire can you introduce yourself? Yes, so I am a teacher in Bristol, uh, where I've taught in the same school for too long, really now. Um, and as well as um, being a teacher, I'm an SLE in primary maths. Um, and in that context, I've worked in lots of different schools around Bristol. And I've also been really lucky to be involved in um, various bits of writing and research. And um, in particular, worked fairly closely with the NCTM and maths hubs. Um, on PD materials for them and also a big bit of non-statutory maths guidance that came out in summer 2020 I was really lucky to be involved with so yeah that's me. Great and we had the real pleasure of having your expertise on the panel for the feedback guidance report so can you just tell us a little bit about just how that came about and then and then also your perspective your experience what we kind of learned as being part of that process. Yeah of course so I was 
kind of there in my role as a, a kind of maths practitioner, I suppose, with a particular subject specific interest. I don't have a particular expertise in feedback, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about the ins and outs of effective teaching and learning in primary maths. So um, the role, I guess, of the practitioners on the panel is to have a kind of dialogue with the researchers and the people involved in um, looking um, at all of the studies that are feeding into what we're considering on the panel and trying to kind of bridge that gap between research and practice. So um, what's kind of useful, interesting, what would we like to be able to say something about? Um, is there anything we can say about that? Um, and just help provide a bit of a lens on how things might be interpreted in the classroom and in kind of current educational context. So I think that's the role um, of the practitioners on the panel. Um, and I guess my kind of, I mean, we'll dive into the detail in a bit, but I guess for me, one of the big takeaways is how complex it is. And for something I've kind of heard so much about over the years, kind of through Hattie and whatever else about feedback, 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 um, it's actually really hard to untangle really clear guidance and evidence among the kind of wealth of studies that have been done. And it's actually also really interesting seeing actually what's been done within the context of educational research and what's been done in quite artificial settings and trying to be analytical and critical about what we can bring into the classroom from that. How do you find you have the various roles? So practitioner but also working delivering training etc how do you find do you find yourself doing a lot of this work where you're reflecting on perhaps broader research findings and applying them to mathematics do you find yourself doing that a lot oh yeah a hundred percent I would say that they're those two roles are completely intertwined and for me that's one of the things I love about my role in school I'm not in class anymore but I'm kind of lead practitioner in school and I don't, I'm, I'm on the school leadership team, but I don't have, I'm not a deputy head. I'm not an assistant head. I'm not a head teacher. So I'm really immersed in the teaching and learning. And I, I don't think that I could be as effective of in the classroom without what I learned from the research and SLE elements of my role, but equally I couldn't do that bit effectively without what I can then do in the classroom. So it's a really kind of symbiotic relationship, I think, between the two. And a really good example, uh, you know, of bridging evidence to the classroom, kind of you know, putting it into action. It often needs that kind of brokerage, that thinking, that time, that support. And uh, teachers just often don't quite get that time. Yeah. And I think there's definitely the specific bits of research. So there's things that I found really interesting in the panel um, discussions, you know, bits of research we looked at about, you know, uh, in my mind, I've always been told you don't give a grade. That's, you know, that's not what you do in good feedback, but actually unpicking bits of research that say actually giving grades can be effective does make you really question your um, view about things. So I find that useful, the specific bits of research. And actually, personally, I really love the kind of framework. I definitely work in my head with like little sentences I've picked up or little mantras and for me, that was personally one of the things I got out of being involved with the report and reading the report is those little kind of mantras and frameworks um, that summarise some of the messages, as well as specific pieces of research that have made me think differently. Yeah, I think those are some really interesting reflections, Claire. I mean, I think the reflection that you make on uh, there's arguably been a, um, some a degree of certainty with regards to what we should do in feedback in the past that perhaps isn't really borne out from the evidence. And, and certainly what we found through the panel process was that it's a really murky area. I mean, it's a quote that comes to the guidance where we quote Valerie Shute, who's, who's an academic um, 
who's, who's com- completed various reviews on feedback. And she calls the literature a tangled web of, re- of research. And it very much is. And it's really difficult to disentangle it. And, and so what the guidance has done is essentially say, uh, infer what we can say from the evidence, because actually there are parts of the evidence which are certainly still weaker than, than we would like. And, and it's why, as exactly as you allude to, it's so critical to have practitioners on the panel to get a sense of, OK, what which areas do we need to address uh, and um, what can we sensibly say based on on, on where we're uh, currently at with the evidence. So on that, in, in terms of the evidence and the recommendations, so recommendation one, of course, is that teachers should first lay the foundations for effective feedback. What does that look like in your classroom and, and specifically in primary maths teaching? Yeah, so that's a, a, a great context to think about feedback in. And I think there's a phrase in there somewhere that's something like good initial instruction will reduce the work that feedback needs to do. And to me, that is so powerful. And we'll probably talk a bit about um, what we might not have done in the past. But that's for, for sure in our school, something we've massively worked on is that quality initial instruction. So some of the characteristics are laid out in there, um, you know, prior knowledge and experience and working from children's starting points. We worked incredibly hard to have a very coherent and well-sequenced curriculum. Um, And we've got, as a staff, a pretty good understanding, I think, of common errors. And we really use that knowledge of common errors to feed into our um, initial kind of instruction. And that has, for sure, massively reduced our workload in terms of the amount of feedback that we need to give pupils over the last four or five years, um, because how we are teaching is much more effective than it has um, historically been. Um, but I think one of the um, one of the images, you know, you talk about it's hard sometimes to pull on particular bit of bits of research, but one of the images that I've completely got out of this report is like Dylan Williams, the analogy to kind of an engineering feedback system. And I think almost that's for me the most powerful thing I've kind of got out of it. And and that good quality initial instruction really fits into that, doesn't it? It's like if you're trying to build a car, you don't just throw some bits together and just get going and and, and see what happens. You you try and get a, a good go in the first place and then you can hone from there. And I, I think that is such a powerful analogy this kind of calibration and recalibration of what feedback is doing to feed into that wider context yeah certainly and yeah that that feedback loop is is like so critical and actually since we've launched the guidance i think we found that people tend to focus on on methods a lot which which i think is inevitable it's the day-to-day of what teachers do but what we've been keen to stress throughout is it's the loop that's crucial. So exactly as you say, making sure that what you're starting with is really high quality, but then even, well, as crucially, uh, closing the loop at the end. So making sure that people do something with the feedback that is given. And that can often seem like an obvious message, but um, as, as we found in the practice review, it, that isn't always uh, taking place in the classroom. Certainly not the fault of teachers, that there, there are lots of pressures and, and challenges to, to do that effectively. So, I mean, in terms of those principles and, and um, I mean, we've spoken a bit about, about recommendation one, um, recommendation two, I think you've alluded to a bit as well in, t- in terms of talking about teachers that provide feedback specifically targeted at, at moving learning forward. Um, I'm interested on, on sort of recommendation three, if there are any sort of practices that, that maybe you've used about to, to sort of prepare people to receive feedback, but also to use feedback in the classroom. So, I mean, there's... Um, 
one of the uh, example techniques that, that is brought out in the report is the use of detective activities. So rather than telling students you've got seven out of 10 right, saying uh, you've got um, half of your answers are correct here, can you find out which ones they are? Uh, and then essentially putting the onus on the pupil to really work things out. Um, I don't know if you've used similar activities like that or, or any other activities that encourage people to use the feedback they're given. Yeah, well, it's interesting because that that specific example remi reminds me of something that happened last week when I was in year four of, of that, um, you know, getting pupils to work out themselves where the errors were. And um, I so I was teaching um, reflecting, reflecting shapes in a vertical axis um, and they and we'd, we'd modeled it. I thought I'd done good quality initial instruction. I'd modeled really clearly how we were going to do it. I knew what they were going to find challenging for sure in my mind. I knew that we mustn't just look at rectangles, which were presented horizontally and vertically. We had to look at rectangles presented obliquely and check we could reflect those. Um, and so, and then I'd done my kind of, I knew that the error they would make was that they'd translate rather than reflect. So we'd done some kind of whole class response systems on have I translated or reflected. So I'd kind of preempted they could do that. And, um, and off they went, I thought, oh, they'll be fine with this. And then there was one particular reflection. Um, they were working on paper by that time. We'd worked on pegboards. They were then on paper. And um, it was actually reflecting a parallelogram that I kind of thought I'd prepared them for, but about half the class translated it. And I think at that time, um, I just kind of was like, right, stop, we'll all go over that again. And in retrospect, actually, um, I would have been more, I, I think one of the distinctions I found really helpful in the report is the like task feedback, subject feedback, and the kind of self-monitoring, is it, I think we called it. And um, I, I definitely provided task feedback there and I could see half the class had made an error, straight into remodel task feedback on reflection. I knew that they could monitor whether it was a reflection or translation because I checked that at the start, you know, in the middle of the lesson. And on reflection, I would have tried to encourage them to self-monitor what they'd done to identify where they'd gone wrong. I've noticed that lots of you, there's one particular shape that lots of you have translated rather than reflected. We practice spotting translations. Um, so that's an example of a how I'd use them, but b actually how also being in the report and having uh, having that distinction of task subject and self monitoring has made me think, oh, actually, I I would have done that differently another time, and has made me think more about my in class feedback as well. That's a really good example, Clara, of just exercising teacher judgment and how it's in the moment and and timing and and the content is actually inextricable from from you know. The principles of, of good feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, that whole framework that I alluded to about the, the like the task and the subject and um, the kind of self-monitoring, I don't think I've used quite the phrase in the report, but that, that idea um, has made me also reflect that I think there is a danger of being too task focused, that having your task focused feedback in maths becomes about task completion rather than the learning intention within a task. So um, I guess, you know, I think we've got better at this recently, but I think there's historically been like an overfocus on activity and what the children are doing in primary maths rather than what they're learning. So, you know, for example, 
um, you know, we're doing something on equivalent fractions. So what are, what are we going to do on equivalent fractions? And I know we'll get the fraction wall out and they can line their ruler up and find some equivalent fractions. And then the, the feedback ends up becoming nothing to do with the learning intention. The feedback is about, you know, a child said, oh, well, two thirds is equivalent to seven twelfths because my ruler's like this. And you're saying, no, your ruler's not straight. Move your ruler across. And, and actually the, it, all of that feedback is around the logistics of getting a right answer to a task rather than actually the core concept if we're learning about equivalent fractions we want to draw children's attention to the you know proportional relationship between the numerator and denominator which is what means that two fractions are equivalent in value so i think it is easy in maths to fall into task feedback that's about task completion rather than task feedback that's about about a learning intention um yeah that's that's really insightful and and my background is an English teacher, so I'm struggling to keep up with the with the mathematical insights. But I'm sure our audience will do a better <laughs> job than myself. Um, but what you've just described there is, is where it becomes the principles of good feedback have to have that recognition of, of subject specificity. My last question then is about I, your role in school is supporting teachers and, and particularly with mathematics, but just about high quality teaching. Um, what support do you think teachers need just on reflection of the guidance and feedback being so inextricable to their daily work? What support do, do school teachers need at the level of policy, but also at the level of you know, just kind of all the other supports? So there's definitely like the systemic things. I think we touch on it in the report about the, the kind of comfort blanket of feedback and um providing visible feedback in terms of um, annotations of some form or even even though everyone knows you don't have to do it writing verbal feedback given there's definitely that comfort blanket for parents and whoever else might visit the school that you've looked at the children's work and so I think there is really big kind of psychological issues almost around that aspect of it it's been so ingrained especially those of us been teaching for for a while Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is but I think it's important to recognize that even when things aren't in a policy there will be lots of teachers that want to do it for their own sense of feeling yeah. like they're doing a good job yeah um there's also I think this is tough the spirit versus the letter but we have to keep at the heart the purpose of feedback is moving learning forward and moving it forward over the long term and I think you know maybe in math specific contexts you've got to look not just at the answers pupils are getting, but you've got to think of feedback in the context of how are they approaching things? So, um, you know, okay. So for example, I was working with a year four teacher um, recently, we were looking at some assessments the children had done and one of the children in there, she'd got a right answer to whatever the problem was they were working on. Um, And in it, she'd multiplied by a hundred and put underneath, make it two times bigger because she was thinking about two movements through the place value chart. And it's really easy in that context, isn't it? To say, great, tick, she's got the mark, she's done the job, you know, well done, feedback is you've done great. But actually, if you're thinking about what the long-term outcome is, then, you know, that's the equivalent of kind of, you know, building your car, but leaving your spanner still in the engine and you drive off and the car might work in the short term. But actually, you've got to be thinking, I'm taking that, you know, I'm not going to leave that spanner there. I can see that later on that's going to cause problems. So you've got to mathematically I think see I don't know if I say maths is special that it has to be even more coherent than other subjects maybe everyone thinks that about their subject but you do have to recognize that you're not just trying to achieve that outcome for your year group but the feedback you give 
is trying to create a really sustainable foundation to move forward into other year groups as well. Yeah, I think I think that's really clear, Claire. And you've just described how that there are general principles and kind of spirit of feedback that's broadly applicable, but also there's subject specificity that we have to attend to. And I think what stands out for me is what you're describing isn't easy either. You know, this is challenging work. It's challenging for a teacher because it's inextricably linked to so many facets of of good quality teaching and it's also challenging for a school leader to both support but also to offer those kind of systematic kind of approaches where everyone can be confident you know that the best practice is is broadly happening so uh, just thank you again for for joining the podcast for being part of the panel and offering brilliant exemplification that we know is really crucial um, to the guidance and yeah, it's really really great to get that practical mathematical but just kind of insightful perspective great you're welcome thank you very much for having me so we're delighted to welcome Corinne Settle from SSAT Corinne would you like to introduce yourself Yeah, I am a senior educational lead for teaching and learning at SSAT. Um, I've been working there for seven years now. Um, I left teaching to come and work on the Embedding Formative Assessment Programme with Dylan William. So Embedding Formative Assessment is a project that we've always been really interested in at the EEF. It's one of our promising projects. uh, And as you may know, we've tested the programme uh, in a large randomised control trial in 140 schools, 140 secondary schools, um, and it demonstrated really positive effects. Um, and as a result, it features very prominently in the feedback guidance report. Uh, and many of the messages that come through from the guidance report are taught as part of the embedded formative assessment program. So we're really excited to, to explore this program further uh, and delighted that Corinne can join us to explore uh, some of the specifics of the programme, how it's delivered and the pedagogy behind it. So, Corinne, do you want to just start just by summarising what uh, embedding formative assessment, uh, what, what the programme is? So the programme is based on now what 30 years of research, um, you know, a number of pilots that happened in sort of the early 2000s. And what it culminated in was the programme that we now have today. The programme is about teacher change, obviously around the practice of formative assessment. So this is about teachers meeting regularly in what we call teacher learning community groups or TLCs um, on a monthly basis over the course of two years. And in those TLCs, they explore the five strategies of of formative assessment. That's great. And and those were co-developed by by Dylan William and and Siobhan Leahy. Can you just summarise those five strategies and and how they fit into the programme? Yeah, of course. So the the overarching aim of formative assessment is about how we elicit evidence. And of course, the most important bit is how we respond to that and we adapt what's happening in the classroom to best meet the needs of our learners. But we break that down into five strategies. So that's that clarifying and sharing and understanding learning intentions. If we don't know where we're going and the students don't know how we're going to get them there. And of course, that's one of the key foundations in the new feedback report. Um, It's about engineering effective discussions 
So, you know, what tasks, activities can we do to elicit that evidence of learning so then we can respond to what's happening in the classroom, you know, and what they understand and don't understand or any misconceptions. It's then, of course, about feedback. It's about feedback that makes learners think and moves them forward in their learning. Then, of course, we've got activating students as resources for one another. So when they're confident and they understand those learning intentions, they're able to use that to help move each other's learning forward. And then, of course, importantly, that they can do that for themselves as well. And in terms of the makeup of those teaching and learning communities, then, so it's, it's my understanding that they're made up of people from across the school, not just one department. Um, and it's the idea that in each of them, they'll discuss a specific strategy and then go away and try that out in the classroom. So across the 18 workshops over two years, um, they work through those strategies of formative assessment. But the whole purpose of the programme is within those sessions, they meet, they discuss a range of ideas and techniques, but then it's about them choosing what they feel is going to make a difference for them in their classroom, with their students, in their subject. Yeah, and I think one of the, the really interesting things that, that came through the, the evaluation report, which is accessible and, and, and freely accessible online, is that actually schools did teaching and learning communities quite differently from, from school to school. And it actually looks like one of the, the core things that we're really impressed by is the pedagogy and the content uh, that, that was included in it. Um, how have you found, I, I suppose, working on the, the programme for, for so long, um, what are teachers' usual responses to these formative assessment strategies? I imagine a lot of them are very familiar with them. Um, so how do they sort of respond to a training programme that, that, is, that is really focused on those formative assessment strategies? I think there's initial challenge because, of course, we've all worked on formative assessments. It's very early in our careers. Um, you know, it's a core part of ITT, NQT or now ECF. Um, and it's always been with us. But it's very much the programmes about bridging what we call the knowing doing gap. So we know what it is, but how do we do it more effectively? And that's the real key part of the programme. And because of that choice that teachers get, although everybody's going to be working on formative assessment, what they work on is the strategies that they really think are going to make a difference in their classroom. And this idea that it doesn't have to be something new. And in fact, the most effective change that teachers can make is in many of those automatic behaviours that we have. A lot of what we do around formative assessment is stuff we do every single lesson. So how we ask questions, how we respond to wrong answers, how we choose students to give us feedback, you know, how we mark, all of that, because we do it so much, is very automated and very habit driven. And it's about looking at those small everyday things that we do, not just a new and exciting technique, and making small changes that lead to significant differences. So what we saw in the project was teachers initially, you know, have we already done this before? Identifying the small things that they can do that are going to make a big difference and then sharing those with other teachers. So it becomes not just about trying new things, but it's also becomes about validating what you already do. Why do tell people, tell me I'm brilliant at questioning. What are the small things, the small behaviors I do that make that really effective? And how can I be confident enough to share that with colleagues? Because sometimes we are quite hesitant to share the everyday stuff. You know, we're too keen to share new stuff. 
And actually, teachers really unpicking the stuff that they do brilliantly and sharing that with colleagues is the golden moments that take place in TLCs. What really strikes me, Corinne, is that there's a real focus on sustaining practice and a real understanding. And, and I think that probably comes from this long history that you have of just evolving and being really responsive and drawing upon the evaluations and the evidence. Um, as you know, the EF, we've just produ produced a new guidance report on feedback, teacher feedback to improve um, people learning. What are your reflections on this latest evidence? So what stood out for you and, and the connections you make between the programme? I think the most important connection, of course, is, is, is that formative assessment is a key foundation to this. Um, I think that's absolutely vital. And I think it's something that every teacher can continue to work on and improve and develop, especially when we're talking about those behaviours that we really do within lessons that can make it more effective. I think it becomes about the prevalence of formative assessment and the effectiveness, which is the two sort of foci for the programme over time. I also think in terms of feedback, and again, this ties directly into the EFA programme, is of course the importance of feedback being wanted by students. And I really love the way that the EFA programme models that for teachers because we expect teachers to go into each other's lessons and but for them to actively seek feedback. So I'm trying a new technique. You know, can you come in and let me know how effective you think it is? What's working? What could I do even better? And of course, that's the climate and the culture that we want to develop with the students as well so it's almost that modeling what we want our students to be and the more our students can engage with and understand learning intentions the more that they can engage with that feedback and respond to it and move their learning forward. So one of the reflections um, in the guidance is that there's this seesaw of methods and a real focus on this dichotomy between oral feedback and, and, and written feedback. What are your reflections in terms of that seesaw and trying to get underneath that and get to the, the actual principles of effective formative assessment? And, and is this something, this kind of seesaw and this focus on methods, something you've seen in, as part of the trials and part of the work that you've done? Very much so, because I think, you know, there's been a very long time we've had a focus on, on marking particularly um, but what we see in the research trial is teachers moving away from marking as not being the most effective strategy or something they must absolutely do. And quite interestingly, the number of skills that I've worked with directly, where I've spent a lot of time, particularly with subject leaders in certain subjects, particularly English languages, persuading them to move away from that real detailed marking to identifying you know, what the students need to learn and how do we support the students to be able to identify those mistakes and correct them themselves as opposed to doing it for them. So I think it's very much sort of about that feedback, that balance, I think is absolutely key, but it's about what's most effective and how that time is best spent. And if formative assessment is just a strand that sits through every single lesson that you teach from the moment those students walk in, we're assessing their mood, their motivation to right through to the end of the lesson, you know, those specifics, looking at what they've learned, have we met the learning intentions, then that's what that continual flow of feedback is about, you know, from us to the students and of course the students back to us again. 
for, from everything you discussed, it sounds like embedding formative assessment is just packed full of incredibly useful things that schools and, and, and teachers can can reflect on. Um, I understand that you're scaling the project up at the moment and, and there's certainly still the opportunity for schools to get involved. Absolutely. Um, we are continually recruiting for the programme. Obviously, it is a two year programme, but the flexibility of the programme allows schools to start at a time that best suits them. So obviously, in the current situation, we've got schools that are looking to start in September or late September as they want to settle back into school again. But also we've got schools looking to start in January time or a little bit later. So, you know, we can start with schools whenever's the right time for them. And the initial support that we provide is around that implementation planning, making they've got everything in place and that they're ready to start. And we will not rush schools to do that. You know, if anything, we'll say, well, let's wait, see what happens, then make a decision. But the support that we give them allows them to make those decisions and we are there to support them as well. But we are currently working with... Um, primaries, secondaries and further education colleges as well with the programme. Um, had a particularly high interest from uh, primaries around the programme with large numbers being recruited just in the last few months, which is fantastic. Um, and we've got sort of groups and even some trusts now that are starting with the programme in September. So we've got groups of schools that are also working on this. We even have small groups of primaries who are bringing the teachers together to form a TLC as one group. So it's not just the, the teachers in one school, it's actually the teachers across three very small primaries working together. So there's lots of different ways that they can access the programme um, and at a time that's going to work for them that they're ready to commit to that two years. Corin, it's really great to hear of those opportunities. It's really crucial that, you know, when teachers and school leaders, they look at guidance and they look at best available evidence, but they need those opportunities to have that structure, have that kind of architecture that's really well proven, really rooted in the evidence. So just, yeah, fantastic to hear it. Thank you for coming on and, and exploring everything embedded formative assessment. You're welcome. Okay, so I think it's time for some final thoughts. And I think my main reflection is around the challenges that schools have here. Challenges for teachers, feedback so inextricable, good practice, daily practice. Also that challenge for school leaders supporting teachers. You might have teachers like Caroline working in primary schools and, and Claire. And then you've got Simon and Nikki working in secondary schools, highly specialised subjects like science and mathematics. And, and balancing the seesaw of methods, thinking about workload, thinking about consistency and, and supportive training for teachers and communicating to teachers, parents and pupils. You know, there's just, there's a range of challenges here. I, I hope recommendation six and, and the alphabet model, you know, put some of those into a structure where schools can tackle this challenge head on because you, you have to, it's, it's integral work. We know done well, you know, fulfilling the principles described in the guidance, that feedback can be really impactful. So yeah, my reflection is it's really challenging, gnarly work, balancing the seesaw is going to take sustained effort and communication, but this is worthwhile and this is a real best bet to focus on. Joe, what are your final, final reflections and thoughts? 
Yeah, two, just just two brief final reflections from me. I mean, the first is that it's also really challenging to interpret this area of evidence. Uh, and we, we've referenced this a couple of times during the podcast. Um, but the evidence is weaker in, in, in a lot of areas in feedback than we would like it to be, ideally. And so in that uh, in that context the seeing things through the lens of the practitioner becomes so crucial uh, and actually you, you'll know if, if you've had a look at the guidance report that most of the recommendations include a what might work in the classroom section where we've used what we can infer from the evidence um, which as I said isn't always as, as, as detailed as we'd like it to be um, and then had detailed conversations with practitioners and academic experts and translated that into what might work in the classroom. But this remains a challenging area of evidence, which we will hope to, to, to continue to improve in the future. Um, the second reflection is, is really just, I think, the key takeaway from the guidance, which is prioritise the principles over the methods. Historically, the focus has been on should I deliver written or verbal feedback? You can deliver fantastic written feedback and terrible written feedback and the same for verbal. And it's so crucial to focus on those first three recommendations, laying those brilliant foundations, providing content, uh, providing feedback that, that is information rich and well-timed, uh, and then planning for people's receiving and then using feedback. And if you take one thing away from the guidance, prioritizing recommendations one to three over everything else is really crucial. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I kind of... I support that message um, and I really enjoy kind of digging into that that challenging evidence base but it just does it brings you back to there's work to be done here um, you know it's kind of transforming that evidence into action for a topic like feedback uniquely challenging but, but perhaps the evidence would indicate uniquely valuable as well um, yeah and Great co-host, that's my feedback, Joe. Um, offline, I'll give you some you know, more detailed, uh, precise feedback, and we might have you back again. I think there's some interesting projects um, in the works to do that. So, so yeah, broadly positive feedback, some areas to improve, but I'll, I'll keep that private. Thank you. Thanks, Alex, appreciate it. And just thank you to the audience for joining again, another episode of the Evidence Into Action EEF podcast please do sign up. We've got a, a really um, interesting future podcast around early language coming up. We've got a, a, a further podcast around cognitive science and some exciting developments in that area. So, you know, we are bringing and translating new high quality evidence and thinking really hard about how we can support teachers and school leaders to put into practice. So see you again soon.